how's it all going to end? You know, the, uh, the question of the end of the world has fascinated humanity from the very beginning of time. The uh, ancient Persians had apocalyptic stories about the end of the world. The Mayan and Aztec Indians of South America had apocalyptic stories of the ends of the world. Even the Vikings of Scandinavia had their own version of the apocalypse. Ever since the beginning of time, people have wondered, how is the world going to end? It's very interesting. Many prophets throughout history have prophesied the end of the world. In more recent days, the Jehovah's Witnesses had prophesied for years that in 1975, Armageddon would occur. 1975 came and went, and Armageddon didn't happen. Over a million Jehovah's Witnesses left the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society at their disappointment and their failed prophecy. Many of you remember Harold Camping back in 2011, declaring Judgment Day is coming. He spent millions of dollars placing billboards all over the United States, placing radio ads on radio stations all over America. He was on popular news stations proclaiming the end is coming in 2011. And yet here we are today. Rasputin, the famous mad monk, the Russian prophet, declared that the end of the world would happen in 2013. 2013 came and went, and we are still here today. Gene Dixon, that famous popular prophet of America, that false prophet of America, Gene Dixon declared that the end of the world would happen in 2020. So sit tight. We still got a couple of years for that one to come true. But people have been fascinated with the question, when will the world come to an end? Even Hollywood, in many popular movies, almost every year another movie comes out promising or looking at what might the end of the world look like. We've seen movies in recent years like Armageddon, The Day After Tomorrow, Deep Impact, and a whole host of others. People are fascinated with the question of when will the world come to an end? You know, friends, for the Christian, the end of the world isn't something to be feared. See, for the Christian, the end of the world is something that we can look forward to with a confident hope. Because for us, we know that the end of this present age is just the beginning of a glorious future when we will spend eternity in the presence of our creator God and with our fellow brothers and sisters who have placed their hope in Jesus Christ. This present age is just the beginning of a glorious future promised to the people of God. And you see, the Christian doesn't need to fear the end of the world because as followers of Jesus Christ, we have two great hopes. Two great hopes that we're going to look at this morning. Two great hopes. Number one, the king has come. And number two, the king is coming again. In our passage this morning, we find Jesus speaking to his disciples on these very themes. If you recall, Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem, headed towards Passion Week, which we're going to celebrate here in a few short weeks. Jesus knew that the end was near, that he was going to lay down his life. And as he traveled, his disciples and even his critics began to question him. Jesus, when is the end going to come? When is the kingdom of God going to arrive? And so in our passage this morning, we're going to see Jesus addressing these very questions. 
This morning we're going to be in Luke chapter 17, verses 20 through 37. I want us to read this passage together, and then I want to come back, and I want to highlight these two themes that Jesus brings out in this passage this morning. Number one, the king has come. We have that hope as Christians. Jesus, the Messiah, has already come into this world. But the other promise that we look forward to, Jesus Christ is coming again. Let's read this passage. Luke 17, starting in verse 20. Once having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation. Nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. Then he said to his disciples, the time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. Men will tell you, there he is or here he is. Do not go running after them. For the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who is on the roof of his house with goods inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife? Whoever tries to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you that on that night, two people will be in bed. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken, and the other left. Where, Lord, they asked. He replied, where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. It's a fascinating passage. And here in this passage, Jesus highlights these two key themes that we're going to discuss this morning, the two great hopes of the Christian. Number one, the king has come. The kingdom of God is in your midst, Jesus says. Jesus is traveling towards Jerusalem with his disciples. The crowds are following him, and his critics, the Pharisees, are there every step of the way, just looking to trip Jesus up, just looking for Jesus to make a mistake so they can accuse him. And we find here in the opening of our passage this morning, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they ask him, when will the kingdom of God come, Jesus? And you have to wonder about the tone of this question. Were they asking this question in sincerity? You know, Jesus, when is the kingdom going to come? When is the Messiah going to arrive? When is he going to overthrow the Roman oppressors and set up the kingdom of David once again and reign from Jerusalem and bring peace and prosperity to all the earth? When is the kingdom going to come, Jesus? Was that the question? Or was the question more sarcastic? When's this kingdom going to come, Jesus? Where's this kingdom you've been telling us about, Jesus? You think you're a king? You and your... Motley crew of followers, fishermen, tax collectors, prostitutes, lepers. This is the kingdom, Jesus? Where is this kingdom, Jesus? And Jesus responds to the Pharisees. He says, the kingdom won't come with your careful observation. 
Rather, the kingdom of God is within you. Now that translation there, the kingdom of God is within you, is probably not the most accurate translation. The NIV translates that, the kingdom of God is within you, yet many other translations would argue that a better translation for that phrase is the kingdom of God is in your midst. The kingdom of God is in your midst. In other words, Jesus was saying to the Pharisees, you're looking for the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is right here. The king has come, I'm standing in your presence, and you are blind to that reality. As we've talked about many times in the past months, Jesus, the Pharisees were looking for a political savior. They were looking for a general, a conquering king, someone who would come and overthrow the yoke of Roman oppression and set up the Davidic throne once again from Jerusalem. And yet here is this Jesus who doesn't look anything like they pictured the Messiah to be. But Jesus says the kingdom of God is in your midst. He was right there, right in front of them all along. If you recall back in Luke chapter 4, Jesus' first sermon in his hometown of Nazareth, Jesus took the scroll of Isaiah there in the synagogue, and he opened the scroll of Isaiah, and he read for the people of Nazareth, the Spirit of the Lord is on me, from Isaiah 61, because he has appointed, appointed me to preach good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus highlighted the very fact right from the outset of his ministry that he had come to fulfill all of the messianic expectations. And over the last few months, as we journeyed through the book of Luke together, we've seen Jesus do all of these things. We've seen Jesus proclaim freedom for the captives, the hope of the gospel, freedom, liberation for the oppressed. We've seen him heal and, and, and restore sight to the blind. And, and all along, Jesus was there in the midst of the Pharisees and all the people to see, but they had missed it. They were blind to the truth because they were expecting a conquering king, not a spiritual savior. Sort of reminds me of uh, just this past week, my wife and I, we were going through a little organizer we have on our kitchen counter. We keep, you know, permission slips for the kids, school information, gift cards, gift certificates, just random stuff. And my wife was flipping through this organizer on our kitchen table, and she came across a gift certificate to this fancy restaurant that, that some friends had given us two years ago. Two years ago! I'm like, are you kidding me? We got this gift certificate? Let's go out and eat! But all along, for two years, it was there right in front of us. And we completely missed it. And that's just how it was for the Pharisees. Here was Jesus Christ, the king of the universe, in human flesh, in their presence, fulfilling all of the prophecies that they were told to watch for. And yet they were completely blind. See, the Pharisees were longing for an apocalyptic hero, but Jesus knew they needed a spiritual savior first. And I'll tell you something, friends. Many in our world today make the same mistake. They long for the peace of the kingdom, but they haven't discovered the peace of the king that he offers us. Very interesting. I don't know if you saw the closing ceremonies of the Winter Olympics this past weekend. As I watched the closing ceremonies, I was fascinated as I listened to Thomas Bach standing there in the middle. He's the current president of the International Olympic Community, Committee. Thomas Bach, in his closing speech at the Winter Olympics, 
he declared, these are the games of the new horizon. He said to the athletes, you have shown us the way to a peaceful future. We offer our hand to everybody to join forces in this faith in the future. Friends, our world is longing for peace. Our world is hoping for this peaceful, utopian future. But friends, we've been doing the Olympics since 1896, 120 years since the modern Olympics began. Where is this peace? Where is this hope that the Olympics are supposed to usher in for humanity? See, the whole world is longing for peace, but without embracing the prince of peace, there is no peace. And Jesus Christ, the king of the universe, came into this world to show us the way to peace. Jesus said in John 10, 10, I have come that you might have life and life to the full. See, Jesus wants to give you peace. He wants to give you liberation. He wants to free you from your sin and your guilt and your shame. He wants to restore broken relationships. He wants to heal the hurts of the nations. But none of that can happen unless we first embrace Jesus as the king of our hearts individually. And as the hope of the gospel spreads from person to person, from community to community to nation to nation, that's when hearts and lives are transformed. That's when whole people groups are transformed. But it only comes by recognizing that the king, the king has already come. And he's available to you. You can know him. You can have a relationship with him. There's no more important news than to know that Jesus has come to be your Savior. Have you embraced the King? The second great hope that we see in our passage this morning is Jesus spends the majority of this passage talking to his disciples about the fact that the King is coming again. See, Jesus came 2,000 years ago. But today, he rules over the universe from his heavenly throne, but he has promised his people that he is coming again. December 7th, 1941, a day that will live in infamy. 76 years ago, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, bringing the Americans into World War II. Many people aren't aware that at the same time the Japanese were attacking Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941, they were simultaneously attacking the U.S. forces in the Philippines. General Douglas MacArthur, the head of the Pacific Forces, was stationed in the Philippines, Clark Air Force Base, Subic Bay in Manila, and at the same time the Japanese were attacking Pearl Harbor, they were attacking these strategic bases in the Philippines. The American forces were forced to flee the Philippines. General Douglas MacArthur, the head of all of our Pacific forces, was forced to flee the Philippines to Australia. But when he arrived safely in Australia, he radioed back to the Filipino people. A message that if you ask the Filipinos who were alive at that time, they will tell you that they lived for the promise of these words. General MacArthur radioed back to the Filipinos, I shall what? Return. And the Filipinos lived for the fulfillment of those words. General MacArthur fulfilled that promise and liberated the Filipino people. 
In the same way, friends, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, the King of the universe, has declared, I shall return. I shall return. D. James Kennedy, in his book, Truths That Transform, he says this, He shall come. It's the unequivocal declaration of the oldest creeds of Christendom. It is in the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Constantinopolitan Creed, the Westminster Confession of the Presbyterians, the 39 Articles of the Anglicans, the Augsburg Confession of the Lutherans. It is in all the great creeds of Christendom. It is found in all the systematic theologies, the lectionaries, and the hymnals of all the Christian churches of history. The second advent of Christ is the great hope of the Christian. It is to be the final culminating point of history. When the last page of the last volume of history shall have been written, there shall be one final exclamation point. Jesus Christ shall come again. The king is coming again, friends. That is our great hope as followers of Jesus Christ. But how do we know? How do we know? I mean, how can we be sure that Jesus really is coming again? Because Jesus has promised us, friends. And God always keeps his promises. Do you know that when we look at the Old Testament, I can highlight for you over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament pointing to the first coming of the Messiah. Over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now, friends, let me ask you a question. If God was faithful to fulfill all of the prophecies related to Jesus' first coming, do we have any reason to doubt his faithfulness in fulfilling his prophecies related to his second coming? I think not. Jesus is coming again. Why would we ever doubt it? When we study eschatology, and eschatology is just a fancy theological word, the study of the end times. When we study eschatology, we're really dealing with two primary questions. The first question is what? What is going to happen at the end of the world, at the end of this age? And number two, when? When are these things going to happen? In other words, what will be the signs of Jesus' second coming? Now, today, we're going to focus on the what. What is going to take place at the second coming of Jesus Christ? In a few weeks from now, when we get to Luke chapter 21, we're going to look further into the question of when. What are the signs that we can watch for that point towards the imminent return of Jesus? So today we're going to look at the what. In a few weeks, we're going to look at the when. But these are both important aspects of our study of the end time. So the question before us this morning is, what will the second coming of Christ look like? And I want to argue that we can describe the second coming of Christ in five simple words. Five simple words. When Jesus Christ returns, friends, number one, he's going to return bodily. Jesus Christ is going to return bodily. Take a look at Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Right after giving the disciples the great commission to go into all the world and make disciples, this took place. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. 
They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Jesus Christ, physically risen from the grave, bodily in their presence, in their midst, ascended into heaven in a physical body, and these angels from heaven tell the disciples he is going to return in the very same way. He is going to return bodily. It's very interesting. There's many groups in our world today that would argue that the second coming of Jesus Christ isn't about a bodily physical return. The second coming of Christ is really about understanding the Christ consciousness within you. It's, it's this mystical concept that, that all of us can be like Jesus Christ. In fact, if you study the New Age movement or, or yoga philosophy in Hinduism, many of the Eastern cults, they would all proclaim that, that through physical exercises and, and breathing exercises, you can experience the very same Christ consciousness Jesus had. The realization that everything is one and everything is God and you yourself have this divine spark within you. That's the second coming. Recognizing your own divinity. What a load of hogwash. Friends, the Bible tells us that Jesus is going to return in bodily form. In fact, when we look at the Gospel of John, John 20, verses 1 through 9, tell us that Jesus physically rose from the grave. In a few weeks on Easter Sunday, we're going to put the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we're going to put it on trial here on Sunday morning. Do we have reason to believe that that really took place? I'm going to argue we have some incredible reasons to believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Later in that same chapter, Jesus appears to his disciples. Thomas, can't believe this is really Jesus. Got to be a ghost. No way he rose from the grave. Jesus says, Thomas, come here. Put your hand in the hole where the spear punctured my side. Feel the holes in my palms where the nails were pierced my hands. Thomas, stop doubting and believe. Chapter later, Jesus is eating breakfast with his disciples. Friends, how many ghosts do you know that sit around eating breakfast with people? Jesus rose bodily. He had a human body. He was resurrected from the grave. And then in Acts 1, which we just read, Jesus ascended bodily into heaven, and the angels of heaven declared to the disciples that he is going to return in bodily form. The second truth we know about the return of Jesus Christ when he returns, not only will it be bodily, but number two, it will be visibly. No one's going to miss the return of Jesus Christ. In our passage this morning, Luke 17, 23 through 24, Luke says this, Jesus says to his disciples, people will tell you there he is or here he is. Do not go running after them for the son of man in his day will be like the lightning which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. Friends, you're not going to miss it. Nobody's going to miss it. When Jesus Christ returns, it is going to be unmistakable. It will be the most magnificent fireworks display in the history of the universe. The entire world will see the king when he returns. This morning when you leave the sanctuary, I want you to look above the doors at the main entrance to the sanctuary. You're going to see an incredible painting. 
painted by Pat Post, a member of our church. That painting shows people from all over the world looking up into the heavens at the return of Jesus Christ. And underneath it, you'll read Revelations 1-7. Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. There will be no mistaking the second coming of Jesus Christ. The Jehovah's Witnesses, that well-known cult that often comes to our front doors passing out their watchtower literature, Jehovah's Witnesses declared that Jesus Christ returned to earth in 1914. In fact, they say that Jesus Christ is living today at the Watchtower headquarters in Brooklyn, New York, and he reigns as an invisible spirit over the theocratic kingdom of God. He returned in 1914 as an invisible spirit. Friends, all you have to do to refute the Jehovah's Witnesses the next time they come to your front door is just read from them Luke chapter 17. 23 and 24. Read from them Revelations 1, 7. Look, he is coming in the clouds and every eye is going to see him. He's going to be like a flash of lightning that lights up the whole sky from one end to the other. You're not going to miss him. You don't need to make up some baloney story about Jesus returning in 1914 as an invisible spirit to help fulfill your false prophecies. Because when Jesus comes again, no one's going to miss it. He's going to return bodily, and he's going to return visibly. And number three, the Bible tells us Jesus is going to return gloriously. He's going to return gloriously. Look at, look at Revelations 19, 11 through 16. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Friends, the king is preparing to take an historic horse ride. And when he does, he's going to return in glory. And nobody is going to miss him. The one who first came in humility will then come in exaltation. The lowly babe in a manger will then be seen as the conquering king. The one who suffered for all because of us all will then be recognized by all for who he truly is. The king of kings and the Lord of lords. Jesus is going to return. In glory. Fourthly, the scriptures tell us that Jesus is going to return triumphantly. Triumphantly. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 10. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in a blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with an everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you have believed our testimony to you. Jesus Christ is going to return triumphantly. 
He is going to conquer sin and evil and injustice once and for all. He will right every wrong. And he will set himself up as the king of all people and rule with righteousness and in grace. He will bring that kingdom that we all long for. And on that day, the Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11, that on that day, at the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I'll never forget back in 2009, watching on CNN, the funeral of Michael Jackson, the king of pop, the best-selling music artist of all time. At the close of the funeral service for Michael Jackson, an African-American Baptist minister named Lucius Jackson came up to give the closing prayer. And in his closing prayer, he said these words, but even now, the king of pop must bow his knee before the king of kings. We're all going to bow our knee before the king of kings. The king of pop, king of England, emperors, presidents, governors, all will bow their knee before the true king of the universe when Jesus returns triumphantly. Lastly, Scripture tells us, number five, that Jesus is going to return unexpectedly. He's going to return unexpectedly. In our passage this morning, Luke 17, verses 26 through 30, tells us this. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. Now many people in our world today mock the idea of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Where is the second coming? So much for this promised return of the Messiah. It's been 2,000 years. Get over it. He's not coming back. Friends, the Bible told us in the end times, scoffers would come. 2 Peter 3, 3 through 4. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming? He promised ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. I was talking with a local business owner up here in Lindstrom just this past week. He said to me, Jason, so what are you going to tell your people on Easter Sunday this year? I said, well, what do you mean? He says, well, don't you know Easter Sunday's on April Fool's, April 1st. What are you going to tell them? April Fool's! Jesus didn't really rise from the grave. He was dead serious. Thought it was a big joke. Friends, I'll tell you something. There is no April Fool's with Jesus. He is risen. He's alive. And you better believe he's coming again. So what is he waiting for? Peter tells us here in verse 9, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, 
but everyone to come to repentance. Friends, God in his grace is delaying his second coming. Because at his second coming, there's not going to be any negotiation. When Jesus comes again, you're either going to see him as your king or you're going to see him as your judge. But God in his grace and in his love and in his patience is delaying his return to allow for the maximum number of all people to come in and embrace him as their Savior and Lord. Have you embraced Jesus as your king? See, because the Lord could return at any minute, we need to live with kingdom priorities. And that starts with embracing Jesus Christ as our Savior, calling him to be the Lord of our lives, following him, and living as his disciples, growing in him, serving him, taking the gospel to all people as his ambassadors. Luke 17, 31 through 33 tells us that the things of this world are going to be of no value to us when Jesus returns. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how many degrees you have. It doesn't matter how famous you are, how successful you are. When Jesus returns, all that's going to matter is did you embrace him? And did you live your life in light of kingdom priorities? My dad used to encourage my brother and I, live with eternity's values in view. Live with eternity's values in view. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is ultimately all that matters, friends. The only way to truly save your life is to lose it for the sake of Christ and the gospel of Jesus. The king is coming. Are you ready? I once heard a preacher say, you know how you can tell if you're really a Christian? If you really belong to Christ, then right now you can pray from your heart this prayer which closes the canon of Scripture. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Friends, the very last prayer in the very last paragraph of the very last book of the Bible. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Can you pray that prayer today? What if today is the day Jesus returns? Are you ready? What if today is the day you meet your maker? Tomorrow's not guaranteed. This past Tuesday, Highway 36 in Lake Almo, this guy's driving home from work, sitting at a red light. Semi-truck driver texting, doesn't see him, slams into him at 65 miles an hour, crushes his car so bad the first responders couldn't even tell you what kind of make a car it was. He was gone, driving home from work. Tomorrow's not guaranteed. And whether you meet your maker through natural causes or whether you meet your maker because Jesus is coming back, we are all going to stand before Jesus one day. And your only hope is the gospel. The Apostle John says this in 1 John, this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. That's the bottom line. You either have Jesus or you don't have Jesus. You either have embraced him as your Savior and Lord or you haven't embraced him as your Savior and Lord. There's, there's no middle ground. There's no negotiating when Jesus comes back. He's coming back as your king, your loving heavenly father, 
or he's coming back as your judge. There's no middle option. Have you embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ? Have you received the life that is available through him? And let me speak to you, brothers and sisters, very briefly. What about the lost people in our lives? Are we living in light of eternity? What if today is the day of Christ's return? Who in your life needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ? Apostle Paul says in Romans 10, 15, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Why? Because the good news is the hope of the lost. It's the only way to peace with God. And it's the key to life and life to the full. Who are the lost people in your life today? Who's going to bring them the good news? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these great promises that we've seen in your word this morning. That the King has come. Life is available in Jesus Christ. Forgiveness of sins is available because you laid down your life on the cross on our behalf. And I just pray, Heavenly Father, if there's anybody here today who hasn't yet embraced you as their Savior and Lord, that even right now this morning they might open their heart to you and they might just say a simple prayer, Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. Please forgive me of my sins. Wash me, cleanse me, make me a new creation. And God, may they know today the new life that comes because of you, our Savior, our Lord, the King of Kings. And Jesus, for the rest of us here this morning who have a relationship with you, I I pray, God, that we would live our lives in light of eternity, that we would live our lives for the sake of the gospel, that we would live our lives with with a passion for the lost people all around us, Lord. With with an urgent reminder, God, that that you could arrive at any time, that the end could be in this next minute, in this next hour, in this next day for any one of us here. And people need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Break our hearts, Lord. Give us a burden and a longing to take the good news of Jesus to all people. We pray this in your precious name. Amen. I leave you with these words from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17. And now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.